0: Morning, church, of beloved. Uh, so, if you uh, haven't been with us for the last couple of weeks, it's actually the third week in a row that we're going to spend in this text. And I thought I'd start by giving us a little, um, a little time to catch up, catch everybody up. Uh, so, we've been talking about this idea of um, boasting, of this human longing that seems to be within all of us that we seek out or we value what's impressive in this world. Like we want the spectacular, we want the grand. We want to be even associated with things that are extraordinary or impressive so that we can boast because even just by associating ourselves with impressive things then, we hope that some of their impressive qualities are reflected upon us. And so this idea of boasting in ourselves or what we've accomplished or what we've done or who we are, it influences so much of what we do in our lives. It probably had a great deal of influence over what you do for your vocational work. It probably had a lot to do with how you chose the schools that you might have gone to or the people that you spend your time with or maybe even the church that you attend. Because there's something about us that wants to just be in the presence of something that's spectacular, to boast in it, to to glory in it. But what we see in this passage is that when we start to boast in things, in this example in the passage is talking about the church, then it starts to cause division or tear a poor church apart. Earlier Paul writes, I appeal to you brothers and sisters in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that." All of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you might be perfectly united in mind and thought. So Paul's starting this letter off, after his greetings and his thanksgiving, he's starting to say that there's division in this church that I planted. He continues by saying, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So there's divisions, there's quarrels, there's something in this church now that is literally tearing it apart. And it's not the usual things that you would think that would divide a church. It's not about the budget. It's not about any of those normal things. But he says this, what I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, another, I follow Christ. And there's this idea that boasting in anything other than Christ crucified, even good things, right? Like Apollos was a good speaker. Paul's the guy who planted the church. Even boasting in good things, if we start to boast in those things, then it's going to cause division in our church. But it's not even just in our church, but it's also in all of our relationships. If you think about it, if we start to boast in ourselves... If we start to identify things in ourselves that we want celebrated, that we want people to be impressed by, and it creates division in the relationships in our lives. When people stop feeding your ego, when people stop projecting on you what what you hope the image that they perceive is, when people stop celebrating the things that you think are worthy of celebrating about yourself, it causes all kinds of division and difficulty in our relationships. On the other hand, if you want to boast in the Lord, what this passage says to us, if we want to boast in Christ crucified, then we're boasting in a uniquely unimpressive message. And boasting in Christ crucified will create division between us and this world. Paul writes in verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us are being saved it is the power of God. It's foolishness to the world. And what is this message that the power of God, that is the power of God but foolishness to the world? He continues, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And what this passage tells us is that the gospel of Christ crucified, the idea that the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Messiah, God's own Son, would be the Savior of this world, but yet be crucified, that's a story that the world just finds foolish. They look at the idea of Christ crucified, and they're outraged or offended. They think to themselves, "This surely this cannot be the Savior for this world. So I was hoping for something more Impressive. But this passage also tells us that even though this message of Christ crucified might seem unimpressive to this world, even though it might seem like foolishness, it is the power of God. Because when Christ comes, he doesn't come in a way to impress you. It's not just another new thing added to all the other things that you choose from in your life. It's not just another item on the menu. It's not more of the same, but it's something radically different. Because in your life, when you choose what you want to glory in, when you choose what you want to boast in, again, it's all about what those things say about you. But when Christ is crucified, when that's the message that we preach, when we preach a message that nobody in this world would choose for themselves, then it just reflects on the attributes and the glory and the power of God. We're not in union with Christ because we chose. We're not in union with Christ because we made a good decision. We're in union with Christ because he chose us, and that's the power of God. In Christ crucified, there's no room to boast about ourselves. There's only room to boast in the Lord. So again, boasting in ourselves will create division in our church and in all of our other relationships. Boasting in Christ will create division with us in the, in the, in the world. it's the power of God. And those things are fine and true, but they're mostly how this idea of boasting in Christ or in this world or in ourselves, how that affects external relationships. So for the last week of this sermon series on this passage, I wanted to talk about the idea of boasting in ourselves versus boasting in Christ crucified and consider what it does internally. Because there's an internal division and conflict going on inside of every one of us. When, we, when we're living out this idea of boasting in Christ or boasting in ourselves. For example, uh, a few months ago, uh, my family, we took this trip, and we were going to go to Korea. And that's a 14-hour trip, direct flight, 14 hours. And we had ample reason to believe that our one-and-a-half-year-old Matthew, one Matthew is not good on long plane rides. You know, he's in that no-man's land where he's mobile enough that he doesn't want to sit still but he's too young that we can't just put him on an iPad and numb him out for the rest of the trip. <laughs> so it's like we're in this tough spot. We took like an eight-hour flight before, and he was just, it was really tough. It was difficult. So for this 14-hour flight, we did what we thought was the best idea. We, we brought in the big guns. We invited Dury's mother to come with us, my mother-in-law. And if you don't know about my mother-in-law, like, she is a saint, like I tell everybody, the best word to describe my mother-in-law is shalom. <laughs> if you guys don't know what shalom is, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's God's peace, his harmony, his tranquility. When my mother-in-law comes to my home, uh, my house is cleaner. <laughs> my, food, my fridge is filled with all kinds of delicious food. The kids are happy and taken care of, and I can just take a nap and just rest in this shalom, in this peace that comes with her. So when we were going on this trip, we're like, we're going to bring Duri's mom, my, my mother-in-law, with us, and it's going to be okay because it's just going to be peaceful. And so we, we, we ask her, and she agrees to go with us and to travel with us, and we get on the plane. I kid you not, like 30 minutes or an hour into this 14-hour flight, we realize that Matthew, my one-and-a-half-year-old, for the first time ever, he's sick. He spikes a fever, but don't worry because we brought medicine because we anticipated this, right? But then we realized that we packed the medicine in our uh, check-in luggage, and you know, it, it was it was it was difficult because like you know, because we brought my mother-in-law around, I thought it was, I just assumed it was going to be such an easy flight. I was like browsing like the in-flight entertainment, like picking out which movies I was going to watch. But Matthew got sick and he was just he was just really fussy. He was upset. He was crying very loudly. And first, you know, Dury tried to kind of comfort him, and then my mother-in-law tried to comfort him. And then eventually I decided that, you know, uh, watching like Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse was going to have to wait, and I was going to have to take my shot because it wasn't working. And for those of you guys who don't have kids, I got to tell you, like, there's a big difference in the toolbox that a mother has to comfort her baby than a father has. Because you think about like a mother, like, she has this head start when that baby is in that womb. And they're, like, building this, like, relationship and this connection. You know, the father's just, like, this guy just wandering around, and he's, like, running to Chipotle late at night to pick up food for the mother, whatever. But the mother and the baby are already building this bond, this connection. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. I think they say that the baby can recognize the mother's voice, right, when it's born. And I've seen that. The baby comes out crying, and he, and, and he hears the mother's voice, and it's just, it quiets them. It's beautiful. And then, of course, like for mothers who uh, choose or, or, or end up breastfeeding, that's a beautiful thing, too. Just the fact that God created women and mothers, that they have um, this ability, if they choose to, 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 to breastfeed their children, just to, just to comfort them, to give them all their nutrients, to satiate any hunger, to quench any thirst. It's this amazing thing that mothers have with their kids. Some mothers have all these things in their toolbox when it comes to comforting their babies. Fathers, we have one thing, and it's just physical endurance. <laughs> that's all we have. It's like when it's your turn, uh, I don't have that relationship like, that she's built while that baby was in the womb. My body can do nothing to provide for this baby. It's just, okay, I will hold this baby, and I will rock it for hours. <laughs> and that's what I decided to do. That's all I could do. And so I picked up Matthew, and I rocked him and I rocked him, and I shifted him around in different positions until I found something I liked, and I just rocked him until he slept, and I just kept rocking him for six hours, six hours straight. And no one's ever mistaken him for a petite baby. (laughs) But this is the thing. Do you know how I know it was six hours straight? Because I timed it. (laughs) Because I kept track of it. Because when my mother-in-law and my wife were sitting there resting and sleeping, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if they woke up so they could see how great of a father I am? I wanted them to be impressed by me. I wanted them to think highly of me, even though this was just things that I ought to do as a father. Even though I kept telling myself, shut up, Brian. Like, you should just be happy that Matthew's finally resting, I was like, I want this affirmation. I want this recognition. I want to be impressive to my wife and to my mother-in-law. I think a lot of us are like that. We just have internally this need for affirmation and to be impressive and to be just, just to look good in front of other people. And so I want to explore that a bit because we just can't help ourselves. Why are we always trying to impress people over in ourselves even when we know it's not right? Even when we know that it's pointless, even when we know it's just what we're supposed to do, even when we know perhaps that it robs the gospel of its power and God of his glory, why do we still need to feed that hunger inside of us? Or another way to put it, even when I'm convinced that boasting in myself will create division, enmity, and strife between me and my church, me and my spouse, me and anybody else, even when I'm convinced that boasting in Christ crucified, as crazy to the world that it might seem, is utterly vital to experience the power of God in my life, why am I still so drawn to boasting in myself? So today's going to be a practical sermon. We're going to answer we're going to approach this by answering two questions. The first is, what is this wisdom of the world? We have to understand this because it's influencing us greatly. And the second question is, how do we practically live a life that boasts in Christ crucified? Or how do we embrace the unimpressive? I mean, if you think about that, that's that's very contradictory to the way that we live our lives. If you're a musician, how do you do that in an unimpressive way? Who really wants to see an unimpressive doctor? What does embracing the unimpressive really mean for us? So the first question is, what is the wisdom in this world, and we'll also talk about how does the gospel contradict it? So Paul writes, "Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And so the question is, what is the wisdom of this world? What are the prevailing uh, bits of wisdom that we find in our culture? What are the beliefs that people hold so strongly that uh, that you can't even really challenge them? They're self-evident. People just assume that they're true. Like people can't even comprehend that this wisdom might be wrong. These truths don't have to be proven, they just are. What is the wisdom of this world? So I'm gonna suggest three statements that our world here in Chicago that they hold that 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 the world holds is obviously true, that are example of the world's wisdom. And these things directly contradict the gospel of Christ crucified and making it seem foolish. So there's three statements. And when I read these things to you, and when we go over these things, I want you to think about your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your classmates, and ask yourself do they believe these things? Or even do I believe these things? Okay, and the first truth that I think the world holds in its wisdom is I am good. I am good. There's this basic assumption that I'm a good person. I might not be absolutely perfect, okay, but I'm basically good. And by the way, I say, when I say that I'm good, I define what good is. Not you, me. I define my morality. I say what's good or bad. I choose it. Nobody gets to tell me otherwise, You know, I think if you guys went out and you talked to your friends, or maybe even you talked to yourself and you are honest about it, and you said, are you a good person? I think most of the people would say yes, if not all. Yeah, I'm a good person. Of course I'm a good person. And if if you follow that up by asking them why, I actually think a lot of them would say, well, I've never murdered anyone before. What is that standard for being a good person that you haven't killed anyone before? It's such a low standard where people are like, well, because of I, ha- I haven't committed homicide, like I'm, I'm good. It's so arbitrary. This idea that I am good, it's this basic assumption that we hold about ourselves to be true. We say to ourselves, I'm going to choose how I live my life. I decide for myself what is right and wrong, and I don't care what you think. But the thing is, we do care do care what other people think and we crave their approval we walk around saying i need you to affirm my goodness see i i act like i'm standing my ground i'm doing what's right i act like i really believe that i am good but in reality i'm constantly asking what do you think do i seem good to you how do you feel about me See, we want to be affirmed in our goodness. We crave approval. We have this alarming lack of self confidence. And although we define ourselves as good, we fear that other people might disagree. So we become insecure and nervous and really needy and honestly very defensive. Constantly having to show people that we're good. But at the same time, we believe it. We believe that we're good. The second thing that we believe is this I'm special. The world tells you that you are special. On Tuesday, I'm, I'm going to chaperone my kindergarten son, Isaiah's uh, field trip to the zoo. The last time I chaperoned a field trip for him, I made a solemn oath that I would never do it again. <laughs> because it was very stressful, and it was a miserable experience, but yet here I am. And so I'm going to go to the zoo with these little monsters, and I'm going to get like five of them to kind of chaperone myself. And uh, I'm going to have a lot of time with them. And what if I sat them down at lunchtime and I was like, hey, guys, I want you to learn one thing from me today. I want you to know that you're not special. (laughs) Like if I said that, it would be so offensive. I would get in so much trouble that you would never even invite me back. Maybe I should do that. it's this basic assumption that is that, that underlies so much of our culture. This idea that you are special, you are valuable, you are worthy. But we never even ask ourselves this question: What is it that makes you special? Why are you special? Most people say, "I don't know. I just am." My mom told me. My teachers told me. I don't really think about it. I just know I'm special. Or some people might say, "Well, I'm unique. I'm unique." But if everyone is unique, then you're not really special. Because if everyone's special, then you cease to be special. You know, Isaiah, like my kindergartner, he had this uh, karate exam this week. And uh, I went to school to watch this belt exam. And the karate instructor comes out and he gives this big speech. And he's like, karate's not about participation trophies. You don't get that here. You got to earn it. None of these things will be rewarded just because they were in the class, but they have to merit it. They have to deserve it. That's, you know, it's, it's all about what you do and how you perform in karate and not just about showing up. And I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's kind of cool. Like, this is a valuable lesson for my son to learn. And then I watched these kids perform their karate routines and honestly, some of them were quite bad. Someone looked like they were doing it for the first time. And I was thinking to myself, this is going to get awkward because of what he just said. Surely those kids who have no idea what they're doing out there will not get belts. And that's going to make people cry, and people are going to be upset, but hey, you know what? They're going to learn something, because this guy said that it's not about participation trophies. So I was kind of like, oh my gosh, I get, I'm going to get to watch something very, very highly dramatic here. But then what ended up happening was, you can probably guess it, everybody got a new belt. Everybody did. I was like, really, that that kid? Seriously? And it's because he wanted everybody to feel special. He wanted to reward everybody. And when everybody is special, when everybody is unique, when everybody, then, then, then nobody is. Then nobody is. So then we really struggle with that question what is it then that makes you special? It's not something uniquely innate about you, because if that was the case, then all of us would be special. And then it becomes dangerous because then we start to think that we are special based on our performance. We're special because I'm beautiful or I'm intelligent. I'm good at sports or that I'm wealthy. I've achieved a lot in life. And if that's where you get your value from, if that's where you find your identity, then you're going to be all over the place in life. And you're gonna think, if I'm special, then I'm entitled. And if I'm entitled, then I deserve to have a nice life. I don't deserve bad things to happen to, you, happen to me because I'm special. And then when bad things happen to you in your life, you're gonna be faced with this, this eye-opening experience where you'll realize that you're not special. That bad things can happen to you, it's just as likely that a bad thing would happen to you as it would happen to anybody else. You're not special. The last thing I would say that the world kind of believes in its wisdom to be true is this idea that I am free. I'm free. I can be whatever I want to be. I can do whatever I want to do. I mean, nobody really believes that, but we, on a surface level, we really do believe it. You know, I was thinking about this, uh, this, this, um, this musical called, uh, called Wicked. How many of you guys have seen that musical? a good amount of you, and there's a song, I'm not going to sing it for you, but this song about defying gravity. Like, I'm going to defy gravity. Nobody can pull me down. But the thing is, as, long, as much as that song is inspirational, as much as we like to sing it, some of us, uh, but, but whatever, like, as much as that song resonates with it, the fact is that defying gravity does not work. But that's the basic message in what we believe. We tell ourselves that we're free to do whatever, to do whatever we want to do. Where We tell ourselves that nobody can tell us what to do. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Don't let anybody shape you, define you, boss you around. Don't let anybody say that they have authority over you. We tell ourselves, I'm free. I get to choose. I get to decide. So I'm good, I'm special, I'm free, Uh, does that sound familiar? Does it sound like the things that our culture believes to be true? Because if that's what our culture believes to be true, then Christ crucified is going to seem like absolute foolishness. Because Christ crucified confronts all these three points. And that's why when the world looks at it, they think that Christ crucified is crazy. It's stupid and it's pointless. Has anybody heard of this thing called the Sunday Assembly? Okay. It's uh, this thing when I was working in London, they had it. I think it started in the UK. I, I looked it up on Google. They used to have one in Chicago, but it closed down. It's church without God. Okay, it's, it's, it's this idea that maybe these uh, atheist people or agnostic or whatever, they've grown up, they grew up in the church, but now they don't believe in God. And they say to themselves, I miss certain parts about the church I miss the community I miss the fellowship I miss the friendships I miss having a place to gather so they have church services well services without God it's, 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 it's church without sin they would say that it's all the good parts of church without the condemnation or judgment of God and I was watching a video on the one that they used to have in Chicago and the guy was like, I love Sunday Assembly because we have, just like church, we have coffee and donuts, but we sing Disney songs. <laughs> and, and, and one of their kind of things in their mission statement is this. I think it starts with this. We're not here to tell you how to live your life. We're here to help you be the best version of you that you can be. And the thing is, when I think about that, it makes sense to me why that's so attractive to this world. Because that's, again, what our world longs for. They want a community to reinforce these truths to them. They want a group of people to tell them that you are good, you are special, you are free. We're not going to tell you how to live. We're not going to tell you when you're doing something that's wrong. We just want to help you become the best person that you can be. And when you realize that that's what the world is kind of suggesting that people believe, and then you think that the church comes along and says, actually, you know what? You're not good. No one's good, not even one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have fallen short of God's standards. All have sinned. Do you understand why the world would reject that? They don't want to hear about any of that. Because I'm good, I'm special, I'm free. I don't want you to tell me about how I'm not right with God. Because I'm good, I'm special and free. And knowing that even as a church it's dangerous for us because we think to ourselves, well, we have to be more attractional. And we have to stop talking about sin so much. And we have to stop talking about Christ crucified. Maybe we can get better donuts and sing songs that people would like more. But again, in order to do that, to appeal to the world's wisdom, you have to get rid of Christ crucified. It's like that old children's song. There were ten in the bed and the little one said, roll over. And when the church rolls over, Christ falls out. I want to show you something here. We thought about what our culture and the world says. Now let's see what the word of God says. And Paul continues in verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Now many of you are wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. And the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And what is Paul saying here? He's saying... You're not good, you're not special, you're not free. You're not some unique, special group of people that has some wonderful, attractional thing about you or your collective personality. He's saying you are despised, you are nothing, you are the things that we're not. And that feels shocking towards our culture. But this is the thing. God is not saying this to put you down. God doesn't want us to stop boasting in ourselves because he wants to humiliate us, because he wants to insult us, or because he wants us to despise ourselves. This message that Paul is saying is not you're not special, you're not good, you're not free, so shut up and be miserable. That's not what he's saying. That's not what Paul is saying is the message of Christ crucified. Paul is saying, you're not good, you're not special, you're not free, but let me show you something. And continues in verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says that in this message of Christ crucified, we discover this radical new wisdom, a wisdom from God that is totally different from the wisdom of this world. The first thing he says is Christ becomes our righteousness. Christ becomes our righteousness. And what I mean by that is that Christ, he takes all of your failure and all of your sin and he makes you good. He makes me, good. He forgives all of my sin. He takes all of my failure and my brokenness, and he says to you, you can stop pretending. You can stop trying to be someone that you're not. You can say to Jesus, I am an utter and complete failure. I fail in so many ways, and, but when Jesus went to that cross and died, when Christ was crucified, as he died, he bought forgiveness for me, and he gives me his righteousness. So when people ask you, are you a good person, you can say, I am good. I am good. By whose standards? Not by your dumb, inconsistent, flaky standards that you don't even really believe in, but you can say that you are good according to God's standards. God looks at my life because of Christ and he says, you are good. Because of Christ alone, in Christ Jesus, it's your relationship with Christ that makes you righteous. Therefore, you don't have to try to win anyone's approval. You don't have to try to prove yourself anymore. You don't have to demonstrate how good you are. You don't have to fix yourself up because in Christ you are righteous. You are good. God looks at you and he is pleased. He has become for us our righteousness. And then he continues and says that Christ crucified, Jesus become for us our holiness. Our holiness. The Greek word here is also translated into sanctification, which is the process of making or becoming holy, set apart, or consecrated. And do you know what that means? It means that you are special. It means that God has taken you from being a nobody, a sinner, someone who is so separated from Him, and He says, Oh my precious child, I'm gonna take you and I'm gonna set you apart from myself. You are mine. You are special. But your specialness does not come from your performance or your record or anything that you've done. It's not about your looks or your wealth or your grades or your achievements. It's because when you are in Christ, by being in Christ, you have now been set apart for him because you belong to him. And maybe you're here today and you don't feel special. You feel like trash. Maybe you feel like junk. You feel worthless because you've tried and you failed. The good news for you today is not that you have to try harder. It's not that you have to give it another shot. The good news for you is Christ crucified. He gave his life for you. He's forgiven your sin. He set you apart. You are special. You are holy because of Christ. Christ has become our righteousness, our holiness. And lastly, our redemption. See, our redemption means that you've been set free, that you were a slave but now you've been set free because in Christ you have true freedom. And I know we like to say that we're free, but we're really not. Because the Bible says that I'm a slave to sin. That's why life can be so frustrating. I think I'm free. I want to be free. I want to believe that I'm free. I want to defy gravity, but like gravity, it's so annoying and frustrating because when I jump out a window, no matter how much I believe that I can defy gravity and I can say, shut up, gravity, I'm sitting there and I'm plunging to my death. Gravity always wins. Likewise, sin has a hold of us and it always pulls us down. Paul writes this idea about being a slave in his letter to the Romans. He writes this, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, that I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Do you feel that turmoil, that conflict that's happening within Paul? Do you ever feel that way? When you go home and you're going to see your parents and your family, do you ever pledge to yourself that you're going to be more patient and loving and gentle this time? By the end of that trip, you've been as impatient and quick to anger as ever. Do you ever get short with your husband and wife because you've had a bad day at work? And even when it's happening, your brain is telling yourself to shut up, stop this. It's not about them. You're taking it out on them. But you just can't help yourself. You know, why do I lose my temper at my kids? It's because even though I have good intention, I, there's part of me that's a slave to sin. You know the, what the right thing is to do. You probably want to do it, but you fail over and over again. Paul continues, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. He's saying, in your flesh, you're a prisoner, you're a slave to sin. You can't defy it, you can't overcome it, you're trapped. You could have every good intention, and it won't matter. In the end, you'll hurt and disappoint the people that you care about and even yourself. And he continues by saying, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ crucified is our redemption and our deliverance. And when he died on that cross, he sets us free from the slavery of sin. Right, so, so that's the wisdom of Christ crucified. Christ has become my righteousness, my holiness, and my redemption. And the story the world longs for, the story that the world longs for, the idea that I'm good, I'm special, I'm free, In Christ crucified, he becomes I am righteous, I am holy, and I am redeemed. And that's good news, and that's why in verse 31 it says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Of course you boast in the Lord because it's all about him. It's all about what he's done. It's not about you. It's all about Christ crucified. He's done all of it. So the Sunday assembly and the message of the world ultimately lead us to slavery. It says you spend your life trying to win approval. You spend your life trying to be special. You spend your life trying to be free. Christ crucified means that we boast in Christ. We look at him and we say he is Everything. So if you're here today and you're hungry for love, acceptance, value, or worth, freedom even, look no further than Christ crucified. Give up on the words of the wisdom of this world because it leads you nowhere. Pursue the wisdom that comes from Christ. And just really quick, what's true for us as individual believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, is true for us as a church that a lot has happened in our church over the last couple of weeks, a lot of big announcements. But I think it points to the fact that maybe in some ways a lot of us were approaching church in a way that we were doing it under the wisdom of this world. We were saying that we as a church were good or special or free. There's something about us that we should boast about. There's something about us that we should celebrate. There's something about us that reflects well upon us and even as those things are being stripped away and even though that's a difficult thing I think the message of Christ crucified is good for us as well the idea that he is our righteousness that he is our holiness and that he is our redemption it's true for us and it's true for our church that we can boast in Christ even in times when they're difficult like now because Christ crucified is the power of God for our church. And lastly to get back to the sermon how do we boast in Christ crucified? How do we embrace the unimpressive in our lives? You know Paul writes in chapter 2 and so it was with me brothers and sisters when I came to you I did not come with eloquence of human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with the wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And when Paul says, excuse me, when Paul says, I resolved to do this, the implication is that it's a hard thing. Right? Saying that you resolve to do something, making a resolution implies a degree of difficulty, right? When you make New Year's resolutions, you don't say, well, I'm gonna watch more TV or I'm gonna eat more chocolate. Those are easy things. The idea of a resolution is that there's difficulty implied. And yet Paul is saying, I resolve to do this. It's gonna be difficult, but I'm determined to do it. And what Paul is saying is, I face the temptation to come to you in a way that's impressive. There's something in me that wants to come and, you know, like, Paul's pretty good with with his words, at least his written words. I want to come and be persuasive and eloquent. I want to impress you guys with my speech. I want you guys to all walk around being like, yeah, Paul was the best. But he's saying, I've resolved to let all of that go and to know nothing other than Christ crucified. And so the question is, if boasting in Christ crucified means that we have to embrace the unimpressive, does that mean that we just have to be crappy in life? It's like in our Sunday service, like with the worship team, do we say to ourselves, if you know how to play guitar, you're out. Right? We're going to have open auditions and we're just going to pick out people who are the worst at everything. We're going to pick out the worst musician, the worst singers, the... <clears throat> the worst preachers. I mean that, that might be ready to be the case. But 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 the idea is, is that what it means to em- embrace the unimpressive? Is that what it means to be to, to humbly submit? Is to say, I'm gonna be mediocre and the worst at everything. And I'd argue no, because I would argue that the opposite of impressive is not mediocre. In order to embrace the unimpressive, we pursue excellence. See, there's a, there's a difference between impressive and excellent. Being impressive means that I'm drawing attention to myself. I want you to see how great I am. I want, you to leave, I want to leave an impression on you. But being excellent is saying that something else is so worthy, glorious, and wonderful that I'm going to do the best I can to point to that. That's the pursuit of excellence. Um, in 1 Kings 7, I'm going to read this to you guys really quick. Solomon, it's talking about Solomon when he builds the temple. And the temple is this huge, magnificent, ornate building. And it says this in verse 15 He cast two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of the one pillar, and a line of twelve cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow, and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on tops of the pillars. The heights of the one capital was five cubits. The height of the other capital was five cubits. There were lattices of checker work with wreaths of chain of work for the capitals and the tons of the pillars, a lattice for the one capital and a lattice for the other capital. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around the one latticework to cover the capital that was on top of the pillar, and he did the same work with the other capital. And it's just more of the same. I mean, he's talking about this temple, that these pillars were huge, 30 feet tall or so. and top of these were these capitals. they 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 were beautifully ornate. Great craftsmanship. It was a work of art. It was all wrapped up in gold and precious stones. It was the very best. It was excellent. And you might say that it was glorifying to God. And fast forward to Mark 13. And it says this. And he came out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, "Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings?" And Jesus said, "Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left to, on another. Everyone will be thrown down." it's interesting, right? because in one sense, Solomon's building this great temple as an act of worship and to glorify God. It's huge, it's massive, it's awe-inspiring, it's ornate, all that stuff, right? Now, this, I don't think this is the same temple, but, but now you look at it, and, 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 and Jesus is saying, you know, these disciples are talking to Jesus about the magnificent, the awe-inspiring nature of this temple, and Jesus is saying, these temples will be destroyed, Why? I think because what had originally been a pursuit of excellence to glorify God had become a pursuit to impress. When the disciples are coming to Jesus saying, look at these buildings, look at these temples, isn't it magnificent? As soon as something becomes impressive in a human way, Jesus says that it needs to go. I mean, these disciples, their eyes were so fixed uh, and their eyes and hearts were so fixed on this temple that they had built that they were overlooking the temple in the flesh that was before them in Jesus. And when that ha- happens, that temple has got to go. Because human impressiveness is absolutely against God. It's an offense to him. And when we take something that is for his glory and we use it to glorify ourselves, it will be destroyed. Likewise, when Paul is saying, I resolve to know Nothing except Jesus Christ crucified. He's saying that he did not come to impress. He could have chosen things differently. He could have come and impressed them in a different way. But Paul absolutely, but but it's not Paul saying that he's come to do a bad job. It's not Paul saying that he's come to be mediocre because Paul absolutely pursues excellence for the glory of God. You see, later in 1 Corinthians, he says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Where he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I work harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that, were, that was with me. And so what this is saying, I think, is that if you are a musician, then you play your instrument for God's glory with all the skills, the ability that he's given to you. Bring glory to God, point to him and not to you. The moment it becomes about you, then it's the pursuit of impressiveness. So whether you're a community group leader, a banker, a doctor, whatever it is, do it for the glory of God, pointing to him. And that's how we pursue boasting in Christ crucified, not to be impressive, but to point to God. And I don't know what you're good at, and I don't know what you're passionate about, and I don't know what the abilities and talents that God has given you are, I don't know what you love to do to serve him, but will you pray, Lord, help me to do this, not to be impressive, but to bring God glory? Will you do it to the best of your ability? Will you pursue excellence so that God would be glorified? I'll add to that, you'll never perfectly do it. I've never done anything purely for the glory of God. And my heart is always very torn and divided. I don't think any artist or musician has ever done anything purely for the glory of God. Our hearts are just that torn. Because internally, we still have that longing to be good, to be special, to be free. The wisdom of the world is all around us. It constantly talks to us. It welcomes us back. But don't let that hold you back. Confess it, church. Like every time I preach, I confess it. You know, God, like, there's part of me that wants this to be about me, but please, God, just use it for your glory. In some ways, repenting of that, confessing of that, putting it before God, that's, that's part of the Christian life. That's how we boast in Christ crucified. That's what it means. It's a, that's what Christ crucified means. It's a message that the world desperately needs to hear. It's a message that tells us to stop trying to pretend that we're good and we're special and we're free. Instead, know Christ crucified. He's our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. And you boast in it because that's how you pursue excellence and you fight the desire to be impressive so that you can point people to Christ. Let's pray.